take your Bibles now and open up to Philippians chapter 2. I'm pretty sure we were here last week, but I only had 12 minutes to preach, and so we're going to go back over the sermon notes last week and see if we can find some more stuff. Look at what Paul says, though, in verse 1 of chapter 2. He says, therefore, now we're going to start right there and go back, because therefore is therefore a reason. It's a conclusion based on what he just said. It's a setup to go forward based on what he just unpacked for us. Therefore, but let's see what he's going to ask us to do. This is the big ask. I want you guys who are Bible students writing notes here. Paul's going to ask us to do something. He's going to ask us to respond. But before he asks us to respond, and this is imperative to your maturation and to your journey with Jesus, he's going to ask us to reflect on who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. God will never ask you to do anything until you understand what Jesus has done for you. Because if you do something for God before you understand what Jesus has done for you, you're going to become religious. It's going to be all about you. It's going to be about what you know and what you do. It won't be a response to what he's done. It'll be about your strength and your muscles and your vocabulary and your faith. So he says this, therefore, pay attention, this is important. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, that's a rhetorical question. If there's any comfort of love, another one. If any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, if those four things are in your life, verse two, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Paul says, because of what Jesus has done for you, church, you want to know what's going to make me so stinking happy, fulfill my joy, is by every single one of you not looking out for your own interests, but the interests of others. It's almost so elementary and so simple. It's like, that's it? Don't you want me to do something else? Don't you want me to climb a big mountain or give a big offering or do something mighty? He says, no, just think less of yourself than you already do. Think of others more. That's what's going to make my heart full. That's what's going to make Pastor Paul's heart explode with joy. Think about others. Don't just live for yourself. How many of you guys have no problem living for yourself? Like you, don't even, you weren't even trained at it? Like you were born as a baby screaming and yelling at the doctors, get away from me, put me back, you know? Every baby's born so selfish, man. Just thinking about themselves, that's it. Then we get a little older, we grow a beard, and it's the exact same. We just think about ourselves. and Unless we're instructed... Unless we're challenged to think less of ourselves. Not thinking bad of yourself, but just not of yourself. And thinking of others. This is a battle. This is a challenge. This is what God asks us to do. Because if you're able to take this low place, this low spot, and esteem others better than yourself, you're going to not only fulfill the joy of Paul, which is great, but you're going to listen. You're going to fulfill the prayer of Jesus in John 17. One of the last prayers, the longest prayers, right before Jesus was arrested in John 18 and killed in John 19. Jesus prayed a prayer. He said, Lord, let them walk in unity. Let them be blessed, Lord, as they mature and love each other. Jesus' final prayer was that we'd be unified, that we'd be loving, that we'd esteem each other better. This is, to me, it's, this is, that's it? That's really what you want? Jesus said in John 13, as he washed the disciples' feet, I've done this as an example for you. Now go and do likewise. It would have made sense that Jesus washed their yucky, nasty feet and said, I've done it for you. Now do it for moi. Wouldn't Jesus have deserved his feet to be washed? 
He didn't do it for that reason. He said, now I want you to go and do it to others. It was all about others' thinking. And they were going to balk at that. They were going to resist that. They didn't understand that so much that Jesus had to give them a visual. He's like, I'll, just, I'll show you how it looks. It looks like this. And he put the apron on, knowing that God had given to him all things. And I'm just going to make it as plain and simple before I start to unpack this. If you want to be a successful Christian, a powerful Christian, an influential Christian, a full Christian, an available Christian, a holy Christian, a dedicated Christian, it's just as simple as esteeming others better than yourself. Serving their needs and not your own. You will be just like your Savior. You'll be just like Paul. Your joy will be full. The acronym for joy, you guys know this, is serving Jesus first, just giving your life to Jesus. That's vertical, but it's not just vertical, it's also horizontal, is it not? The pharisaical believers, they were all about the vertical connection. Let's go to God, God, and everyone here, I'm not really into those people. They're kind of weird. And if you want joy, you've got to go Jesus first, and then you've got to go others next And then eventually, after you sought Jesus and served others, you can take care of yourself, J-O-Y, joy. It's really the way to joy. If you do it the other way, the American way, which is yourself first, and then maybe others, and then if you have time for Jesus, it's not joy, it's yaj. (laughs) Nobody has any time for yaj. Paul says, let my joy be made full if there's any consolation. Now, let me just make a few thoughts before I move on. Paul's again writing this from jail. He's seeking to encourage and edify, instruct and equip the church at Philippi when things aren't going perfect for him. He's chained to a Roman guard, doesn't know when he's going to get out, hasn't yet seen Caesar Nero. He's not sure what's going to happen. And you know what he does? He serves other people. He does the right thing. I think within so many of us, we know what we need to do next but we're waiting for a few things to work out before we take that next step, aren't we? How many of you guys are waiting for some things to solidify or to clear up or to get better before you do the next right thing? Emotionally, relationally, financially, physically? We're so good at making excuses. Raise your hands if you're good at making excuses, okay? Raise your hands if you made an excuse not to raise your hand. I don't want to raise my hand, you know? Let me just say it this simply. Don't wait for things to get better before you take take the next right step. Paul's doing what God has asked him to do, and he's telling other people to get after what God has called them to walk in. What I tell people to do is to plead the blood of Jesus right where you're at. You got mistakes, you got issues, you're in debt. You just suffered a divorce, you have a loss, you're all messed up. Man, as soon as I get, as soon as the chains are off and the darkness, you know, gets illuminated, then I'll start doing the next right thing. Plead the blood. Plead the blood of Jesus and start walking with Jesus. Start trusting in Jesus. Take those steps right now. Yesterday I oversaw a memorial for Billy Joe Hooten. Billy Joe Hooten went to church here and she was active in the recovery community. She died on March 26th this year. Her boat capsized and her and Captain Mike Morgan both perished at sea. And as I went to her memorial yesterday, man, it was packed out. Embarcadero, one of their banquet rooms. And every single person there talked about Billy Joe Hooten and the person that she was for the last three years of her life. And even in her addiction and her struggles, she was a servant of others. She wasn't perfect, didn't have all her T's crossed and I's dotted, all these issues, but she served. Everywhere she went, she tried to make things better. 
Somebody started going under. Somebody started going missing. She would go find that person. She would call him. She would hold him accountable. And as it began to hear this, I was like, man, I wish I had a little bit of Billy Joe in me to not wait for things to get better before I start to let my light so shine before men. Paul is here and he's saying, let's go. Let's get after it. Let my joy be full. Paul, how is your joy going to be full? By you guys loving each other. Paul, don't you worry about yourself? Don't you want these things to get better? And Paul is not thinking about himself, but he's thinking about other people. And if we all had this challenge, this concept, I believe the church would be moving forward at a greater velocity than we already are. You remember what I told you in Paul's testimony that he gave in 2 Corinthians 11 last week? He'd been through shipwrecks and imprisonments and beatings and starvings and perils of nature, perils of this, perils of that. And he said the major thing that crushes him every day, though, was the health of the church. How's everyone else doing? We need to pray that in, don't we? Lord, give me a burden for the school. Give me a burden for Sunday school. Give me a burden for the high schoolers, for the young adult group that meets on Thursdays. Give me a burden for the staff, Lord, that are doing everything they can to make sure that the gospel, give me a burden. And we're so easily distracted by the real things in our life. Paul could have been distracted right now writing a letter, guys. Man, jail's tough. I need you guys to send me one of those care packages. I need to put some money on my books. I need to get me some Top Ramen. I need some Cheetos. You know, he, he could have needed some stuff, but he didn't ask for any of that. And I'm not sure if I was being subjected to the amount of torture and difficulties and challenges that I would be as concerned as Paul is about the church, but I want to grow. He says something, though, in verse 2. I want you guys to just gather this with me. And we've been here for like three weeks now. I can't believe we're still here. But we are. I think the Lord wants to speak to us and remind us. He says, therefore, and then he goes on to unpack what he's going to tell us before he asks from us the big ask, which is to think less of ourselves and more of others. The therefore is coming off of the conclusions that he's given to us in verses 27 through 30. Let me just read them quickly. This is to the Christian. He says, hey, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of your affairs. That you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict that you saw in me and now here is in me. Therefore, if you have any comfort, consolation, fellowship, affection, mercy, Paul's masterfully leading us in this journey of being saved by Jesus, cared for, loved, and accepted and protected. Yes. And then equipped, encouraged, and exhorted to go out and to respond, to be the people. But you know what he helps us to understand in verses 27 and 30? It's not going to be easy. How many of you guys have found being a Christian, staying on mission, thinking less of yourself, more of others, staying out of the ways of the world, has been a conflict? It's been a fight. It's always going to be a fight. When you understand this, then you won't take so much time figuring out why you're fighting and what's going on. Listen to some of the words that Paul uses in verses 27 through 30. These are adjectives and descriptive words. He says conduct. That's what you do. These are action steps because Christianity is action and reaction to who Jesus is. He says stand fast. This is dedication. This is not getting veered way to the left or to the right or getting off your path. He also says striving. Okay, that means hard work and steadfastness toward the mission. How many of you guys have found that in your marriage, in your ministry, in the things that matter most, you have to work at it. 
doesn't just come easily. The gospel that Jesus has given to us is salvation for free, but there's works that are coming right after that. He also says not terrified. That means that we have boldness when we're opposed or challenged. He says suffer. This is the price of following Jesus. And he uses the finally, the last word, conflict. How many of you guys like to avoid conflict? You laugh and nod, but you don't raise your hand because you don't want to conflict anybody. A little passive, you know. We don't like conflict. And yet he says it here in verse 30, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. And I guess I just want to instruct, I want to encourage you guys. If you're battling right now, if you're fighting against anything, maybe things out there, things in, inside. I like how Paul uses these metaphors. Throughout his writings to Timothy and to others, he would use sports metaphors and athletic metaphors. He would say being a Christian is kind of like being an athlete. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, he says, Athletes that don't compete according to the rules, they get disqualified. Okay, farmers that don't farm in the way you're supposed to, it doesn't work for them. Soldiers that don't be right, so it doesn't work for them. In order to be a Christian, in order to fight, you've got to do it the way that he asked us to do it. Otherwise, it's not going to count for you. And I love how he uses sports metaphors like wrestling, racing, and boxing. Not everyone likes sports and sports metaphors. That's why we have prayer teams. We're praying for you. And, you know, I just like what Paul, I'm just, I'm just following Paul. And I'm just thinking about this battle and how Paul aligns it to sports and conflict and Man, sports are kind of cool. Sports are cool because there's all kinds of different varying sports and different levels of sports and different rules for sports. You ever played soccer before? Soccer is such a cool sport because, man, these guys are running around. And the average soccer player runs 7 to 10 miles per game, okay, which seems a little extreme since they don't even score any points. It's 0 to 0 at the end of 90 minutes. Like, why don't you, maybe you should change sports. Maybe you should just run, you know, like stop trying to score goals. And, you know, they're competitive though and they're running. And soccer players are funny because if you like hit a soccer player, he'll fall down on the ground and his leg is so broken, it's shattered. His whole body's shattered and, you know, he's wheeling and he can't even move. And then the ref comes out and gives a yellow card to somebody. And then the medic comes out and he's got that magic spray. Have you ever seen this before? The magic spray and he sprays his shin guard. You know, he's like, oh. I'm better now. You know, and he gets back up and, and it's like, what are these guys doing? You know, soccer, but it's part of the game. It's part of the game. As they get injured and fake those injuries, they get a shot and they can maybe score a goal and it goes from zero to zero to one to zero or something like that. But you compare that to hockey. How many guys played hockey back in the day? Hockey players? Okay. I, I grew up in Minnesota for a little bit. I played hockey. Man, you can play hockey in your living room. It's all, it's awesome. Hockey's everywhere. In hockey, nobody fakes injuries. Okay, nobody fakes injuries. You get your nose broken, like your nose is broken. Like, it ain't broken. Put me back in, you know, and blood and everywhere. And it's a different level of competition. Hockey's so crazy. You don't get yellow cards when you get in a fight. As a matter of fact, they have predetermined there's a little spot for you to take a three minute timeout if you want to fight somebody. I mean, in basketball, if you fight somebody, you get ejected for multiple games. In hockey, they're like, okay, if you want to fight, we're going to give you like 45 seconds to get it out of your system. Then you've got to take a three-minute timeout, and then you can come back and play some more. That's a real sport. I wrestled in high school, wrestled in college. And, and so when my boys became a little bit older, I took them to their first wrestling practice. And I was excited to have some wrestlers on the mat, you know, and they began to wrestle, but what I failed to tell them is that somebody's going to come at them, another little boy, grab them and try and pin them on the ground and inflict injury while doing so. And so my kids are looking at me, Dad, stop him, you know. Oh, forgot to tell you, it hurts. My point is this. We're in a battle. There's fights. There's enemies. It's not going to be easy to be a Christian. It's not going to be easy to work out. We're going to see that in Philippians chapter 2. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. 
Paul is giving us this ask. Have you been comforted by Christ? You have consolation, encouragement, fellowship. You have these things? Then get after it. And I want to encourage you who are here this morning or watching online, keep fighting till you win. What's it worth? There's competition. I just want to make sure you guys understand this. We have three enemies until the day we die. The first enemy is the internal enemy. That's you. That's the old nature, the old flesh, the sinful man. He's still there. The Bible says he's been crucified. The word there in the Greek means paralyzed. He's still there. He still has a voice. Your old nature, your old man. You have to fight that guy or that gal every single day. It's the internal enemy. Then we also have the external enemy. This is the world and the systems and the philosophies and the ways of man. This world is anti-God, anti-Christ, anti-Bible, anti-church, anti-you. And we're not fighting against that, but that's fighting against you. You realize that, right? Not only is it internal and not only is it external, but we also have the infernal enemy. The devil himself, this fallen angel who's in rebellion against God, and because he can't take out God, he goes to the next best thing, which is God's bride, the church. He's going to attack you for the rest of your life, and as we understand the conflict, we can fight back properly, put our helmet of salvation on, keep our sword of the spirit, keep the shield, keep the belt of truth on, breastplate of righteousness, shoes of the gospel, having done all, stand. Take a stand. Stand for your family, stand for righteousness, fight for what matters most. And Paul's telling us, guys, you're in a conflict, you're having all kinds of issues, you're striving together, yeah, this is what's happening. And I need to be, I need to be reminded of this. Because whether it's soccer or hockey or wrestling, whatever the sport is, you have a coach, you have conditioning, you have refs, you have rules, you have objectives. And Paul says, you got to know what the rules are. you got to know where we're going. you got to know what to do. And then he leads us into the therefore. And he says in verse 1 of chapter 2, therefore, if you know the fight, if you know what's going on, and before he asks us, though, what's he going to ask us to do? If you're a Bible student, he's going to ask us for four or five things. But before there, he's going to tell us what Jesus has done. But the four or five things he asks us to do, he's going to ask us to be like-minded, He's going to ask us to have the same love. He's going to ask us to be of one accord. He's going to ask us to do nothing out of our own selfish ambition or conceit. And he's going to ask us to esteem others better than ourselves. But before he asks us to do that, he wants us to understand what Jesus has done for us. And can I make sure and underscore this principle I've already pointed out a few times? If you truly know what Jesus has done for you, you'll walk to the ends of the earth for him. You'll give it all. But until you know what Jesus has done for you, everything you do then is not for his glory, but it is for your own. And when you truly respond to who Jesus is, remember that story in Matthew 17? We see this exemplified in Peter. Jesus is there and he's glorified and Moses and Elijah show up and they're all having a conversation about Jesus and his upcoming death. And what does Peter want to do? Peter immediately wants to start doing stuff. He's a doer. Let's start doing stuff. And he's like, hey, 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 sorry to break up your guys' meeting. I was thinking we should start building some stuff. And the father comes down and says, Peter, shut up. Mute. And listen to my son in whom I'm well pleased. See, Peter had a tendency to do stuff for the Lord without understanding who Jesus is and what Jesus was about to do. And so I want to thread the needle like Paul is here before he gives us the big ask, verses 2, 3, and 4. Be like-minded. Be of one accord. Esteem others better than yourself. Before he does that, he asks four rhetorical questions. If you have encouragement, if you have comfort, if you have fellowship, if you have affection, then do these things. Because right now, if you're married or if you're single or you got kids or you got neighbors, 
or you got people around you, do you know that God wants to demonstrate his reality in your life through the way that you see other people? It's not just vertical. Vertical worship. It's very, very important that we connect with God in this way in order that we would have horizontal then fruit and service. But your horizontal fruit and service with other people is going to be muddied and muddled if you don't have a vertical understanding of what Jesus has done. So we ask these questions, let's ask them together and answer them ourselves as well. He says, is there any consolation? Look at verse 2. Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, we'll start with that first question. That word consolation means encouragement. Is there any comfort or encouragement in Christ? It's a a question. What's the answer? Okay, let me try that again. I mean, seriously. That's not fair. That's not fair. You guys weren't ready for that. Okay. Is there any comfort or consolation in Christ? Okay. I mean, we're talking, this question right here should blow your mind. When you think about Jesus, and is Jesus real? Does Jesus change everything? And Jesus, 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 and Jesus saves? Is there any comfort or consolation and encouragement in Jesus? The answer is a resounding, yes! Sorry, sound guy. I, you know, but that, it should be, this is crazy. And if it's not anything other than that, you might still be dead. It's just the truth. You can't be saved by grace through Jesus Christ and the power of the resurrection and not have your entire life changed. Otherwise, it was just a mental ascent. It was just some sort of thing, this religious formality. But when you truly understand, is there encouragement in Christ? Yeah. How much encouragement? You could burn me at the stake. You could take everything I have. There's nothing you can take from me. I already have it all in Christ. I am so full. And he asked this question before he gives this big ask. Is there consolation from the one who raises people from the dead? Is there consolation from the one who calms the storms and commands the waves? Is there any comfort from the one who heals the oppressed and sets the captives free? Is there any consolation from the one who forgives, empowers, and cleans? The one who redeems, he calls, he qualifies, and he sends out. He leaves those who have left him and he finds them. He pursues the one who's left the 99. He finishes the work he began. He won't lose anyone in his hand. He prays for us every day, goes on rescue missions, rules and reigns, and is one day coming again. He's currently making his heavenly dwelling place for you. He knows your weaknesses and still in love with you. Is there any consolation and encouragement in Christ? Yes! And when we understand that, it changes everything. He goes on, he says, is there any comfort of love? Look at verse, two, verse one of chapter two. Any comfort of love? This idea of love in that day, this agape love was a foreign term. Agape love meaning unconditional, unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor. It's an unconditional love. He says, do you have comfort in that? This word comfort in the Greek literally means that there's a bravery and a confidence and a comfort that comes from knowing you're loved. Let me ask you a question. Don't answer this one, by the way. Have you ever been dumped? You ever been betrayed? You ever been left abandoned or abused but by a lover, somebody you loved? Anybody ever hurt you deeply? The love that God gives to you is not that way. It is a love that never fails. A love that is undying. A love that seeks to cover you to the end. It's a love that won't leave you or forsake you or abandon you or betray you. There are so many people right now who are like, I want to give my heart to this individual, but I just don't know if I can trust another person. I've been hurt. I've been abandoned, I've been abused. Listen, when you know you're loved by God in a way that was demonstrated on the cross, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his love in that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. 
And you who are Christians here this morning, you wake up, you're like, I don't know, I'm just kind of freaking out today. I'm not really sure how it's going to go. What? What? Do you have any comfort in this love? It's a rhetorical question, but Paul's in jail asking this, knowing that we're going to struggle with this, but knowing he wants to end that struggle. You have comfort. You have consolation. You have encouragement. And you should have a bravery that comes from knowing you are loved. Then he goes on in verse 2, again, verse 1 again, and he says, is there any comfort of love, any fellowship of the Spirit? This is the third thing he points out before he asks us to live less for ourselves and more for others. Do you have any fellowship in the Spirit? This is so crazy. Did you know that if you're a Christian, you can fellowship with God himself 24 hours a day? You can walk in the Spirit. The Bible says you can therefore now come boldly into his throne room to obtain mercy and help in your time of need. That God can give you the peace that passes understanding that you can access him for wisdom, for insight, for guidance, for confidence, for power over death, disease, and depression. Is this crazy? God's given us full access. And don't even raise your hand because I'm so ashamed to even ask this question, but how many of you guys having full access to the very presence of God's Spirit don't take advantage of it all the time? Walk in as a pauper. Man, I wish I had some joy. Really? Man, I wish I knew what was going on. Really? Man, I wish I knew what to do next. Really? Man, I wish I wasn't so sad right now or so oppressed or so overwhelmed. Really? And I'm right there with you. And he says, do you have any, do you have any fellowship of the Spirit? Do you have any intimacy with God? And this is a slap to my face. Because I have access to him at all times, but I don't take advantage of it. But he's saying, guys, you have this. Paul, you, you just have life so easy, Paul. What do you know? He's in jail. Fully fellowshipping with the Spirit. Fellowship is that intimacy we have with another person. It's like, it's like two fellows in a ship. Fellowship. That's good. And you're, you're connected. You're experiencing the same thing. Guys, this isn't just vertical, by the way, and it is, and, and may we all repent and say, Lord, I'm so sorry. Because how many times have you been dragging your feet, Eeyore, Sour Dower, Debbie Downer, Negative Nick, going through life just wondering what it's all about, and the Lord's like, I'm right here. Nothing's changed. I'm available. Have you any comfort of love? Have you any fellowship of the Spirit? It's not just vertical. It's also horizontal. This is, this is one of our greatest resources, is the connection we have with each other in the Spirit. Have you experienced this before? Where you might not even know somebody that well, you might not even know somebody at all, and you realize, oh, you're a believer? Whoa, whoa. Instant fellowship, instant appreciation. On Thursday, we jammed up to Ikea and Costco, and I had this wild idea just on the drive. To, to drive too fast was the first idea. And then the, the second idea, I said there were three churches I wanted to just pull into and two of their facilities. And we didn't call anybody, we didn't set up any appointments, and we stopped at all these churches on the way, on I-5, and one was off 217, and the other's off 205, and we just pulled in and came out, opened up the door, and said, hey, we're from another church, we'd like a tour of your church. And they smiled at us and said, let's do it! And they gave us these tours of the churches, and we prayed, and we fellowshiped, and got to know all kinds of stuff. Can you imagine if you just went into any little old business and said, we'd like to see behind the scenes, you know? You, Security, we got some crazy people here. And... Christianity is the greatest thing in the entire universe. It's the greatest thing. It's the, and we take it for granted. We don't understand. Paul's like, hey guys, I'm in jail. I'm not even worried about it. I want my joy to be full. And here's how. Do you have comfort of love? Do you know God loves you? Yeah. Do you have fellowship of the Spirit? This is what we're talking about right now. Are you encouraged by Christ? Are these things yours? And he finally ends and says, do you have any affection and mercy? This is the Roman first century. Affection and mercy were not common terms. 
People were rough and brutal. Gladiators were killing people. People were being torn in half. This was a rough time. And he says, have you ever had affection and mercy? Have you had that from the Lord? And the answer is yes, we have. We've been touched. We've been blessed. Something within my perverse nature still wants to be prideful and tough and not to love people in this unconditional way. And God says, hey, I want you to be merciful and compassionate. I want you to be loving. This is, this is not normal for our day. Everyone's tough and everyone's got this skin about their eyes that they can't see their hearts beyond them. And he says, if you have any affection and mercy, and finally he ends with this big ask, and let's go ahead and spend the next couple minutes before we close with these thoughts. He says, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in, every, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself, and let each of you look not only for his own interest, but also for the interests of others. Each one of those verses says the same thing. But you know what he says? He says, don't let vain ambition and conceit be what you live for. But what he is saying is be very ambitious to live for the glory of God and the good of others. Ambition is not a bad thing. Vain ambition, conceitful ambition, for yourself ambition, those are things that are not godly. Paul was more ambitious than every single one of us combined. This guy couldn't be stopped no matter where he went. He was planning his next trip, going on his next journey, looking for the next person to witness to. He would not be stopped. Reminds me of Colleen here just a little bit. A little bit. Wouldn't be stopped. Keep going ambitious. And wouldn't it be awesome if we decided to say, Lord, use us for that same way. Make me ambitious for the school. Make me ambitious for Sunday school. Make me go to the luncheon today at one and figure out what's going on. Make me ambitious for my community, for my neighborhood, for my church, for my life group, for the worship team, for all the things that are going on. Help me not to be so self-interested, but others interested. Why would you do that? Because Jesus has given to you everything you need. And this world will only keep ripping you off. This world will only keep leading you on. This world will only keep letting you down. It is only in Jesus Christ when you live for him and others you will find pure joy and purpose in your life. This starts with a mindset, doesn't it? We learned in chapter one that he had a singleness of mind. But as we take our minds now and submit them to this purpose and to this calling, say, I want to live for other people's good and for God's glory. I don't want to consider myself anymore, what I get out of this or what this means to me. And as you get older and older, do you not figure this out? It's just vain glory. It's vanity. It's soap bubbles. There's nothing. And the world hasn't figured this out. We are the messengers of this message. And Paul is pleading with us if we were going to make his joy full, which essentially is everybody's joy. The message of Jesus Christ is to serve, not be served. And he came and gave his life a ransom for for many. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. I would predict that even if we make some decisions today to give our lives to Jesus and to serve more freely, that there will be a fight. There will be a conflict. The internal enemy is going to rise up. The external enemy is going to resist. The infernal enemy is going to push back. It's never going to be easy. And as you fight back for what's right, We're going to see in the next couple of verses here, he says, let this mind also be in you, which was in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of man. He's going to take this thought even further. We won't look at it next Sunday because next Sunday's Easter. We'll be in another passage. 
But he takes this contrast, and he's taking, he's asking us to do something that's crazy. He says, hey, you want to know how crazy this was? Jesus Christ, who did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, he was God. He knew all things. He had all things. And in light of that, because he had the comfort of love, he had the fellowship of the Spirit, he had the consolation of heaven, he had all these things, he was able to serve others. You want to be a good Christian? You want to be a great Christian? You want to be the most influential and profound Christian? It's not a matter of what you know. Okay? It's not a matter of what you have. It's truly a matter of how much you love others. That's the challenge. That's the fight. That's what Paul asks us to do. That's what's going to glorify God. That's what's going to keep you free from the traps and the snares of this world. And that's what's going to give you a life full of joy. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, we receive your word. And we ask now, Lord, that your word would have its way in our hearts. That the birds of the air would not snatch away these seeds, but these seeds would find root, Lord, and produce fruit. And we truly would look, like he said, we would look at others and esteem them better than ourselves. We would seek to serve others in their interest, not our own. And we would do so knowing that Jesus Christ has given to us everything we need. The comfort, the consolation, the encouragement, the fellowship, the affection, the mercy. He's given us everything we need in order to be the most loving people in the entire world. Maybe you're here this morning, you would say, I need help with that. I believe it because he said it and that settles it. But I need the Lord to anoint it. Would you just raise your hand right now? If you need the Lord to anoint this love from above in your own life, to be a more loving spouse, to be a more loving man or woman, to be a servant of all. Paul didn't ask us to go out there and to discern right from wrong and then you know, give people grades. He said, go love. Go love. If you have received love and affection and mercy and consolation, then you go out there and my joy will be full. This is my prayer. Lord, my hand is up to forgive me of my sin, my pride, my conceit, my vain ambition, all the things that are contrary to you. We all lay those down. And we ask, Lord, that you would give us your heart and your mind. Thank you for your word, Lord, which just cuts right to the truth. And even this week, Lord, as, as we go out and do intentional acts of kindness, Lord, in honor of Uriah, I pray that that would become who we are, that it wouldn't just be a challenge or some event or something or some anniversary, but it's who we are. By our love for others, they would know we're your disciples. So we thank you, Jesus, for the comfort that comes from you. Thank you for all you've done and all you're going to do, Lord. We give our lives to you. Bless us as we go our way now. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said? Amen. amen and amen. God bless you guys. Let's walk in this today. Let's make ourselves known as the most loving, most serving, most creative, most giving, most sacrificial people in the entire world for God's glory and for others' joy. Come and grab one of these cards up here if you want to do an uh, act of love in Uriah's name. They're up here on the stage. Other than that, I love you guys. God bless you. You're dismissed. Don't forget the Sunday school luncheon today at 1 p.m. upstairs and the missions committee tomorrow night at 6 p.m. Let's bear the burden of the church. I love you guys. You are dismissed.